and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Simon spoke to Anna Gajerado, who is a campaigner for freelance writers' rights. So Anna's profile has really taken off in the last year or so uh, on the back of a campaign she started called Fair Pay for Freelancers, which has aimed to improve the often difficult lot of freelance writers and journalists. And she's also set up a series of events and a excellent newsletter, all aimed at uh, improving conditions in this space. It's a really interesting episode, and I hope you enjoy it. So I'm here with uh, Anna Cadrea-Rado. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's great to have you on. Could you start by telling us um, when you decided to become a, a, free, a, a fearless campaigner for freelance rights? I think I don't think I ever necessarily thought I would become a campaigner. Uh, it kind of not exactly happened by accident, but pretty much immediately after I went freelance, I started... Um, getting quite frustrated with a lot of the payment issues around being freelance and like not being paid yeah pretty much not being paid being paid late um just being mistreated by companies all of that kind of stuff um and i started thinking like is there something that could be done about this and i sort of spun this idea of launching literally a google doc with my not my outrage, but um, all of the problems that I saw with freelancing. And it was when the pool, the women's website shut down and left um, pretty much all of their freelancers out of pocket and also their staffers as well. But freelancers um, had sort of invoices dating back months that were unpaid. And then justified it with an emoji. Yeah, the winky face emoji. Yeah, exactly. Um, It was really heinous that and um, anyway that was the straw that broke the camel's back for me so i launched my fair pay for freelancers campaign which is as i said it's literally a google doc and it's a letter calling on the media to pay its freelancers fairer better and faster um and did that predate fj and co or was that kind of running already by that stage it so fj and co is my platform for freelance journalists and it kind of I guess FJ and Co launched officially around about the same time that I launched the campaign I'd been putting on events and doing my newsletter for quite a while before that but FJ and Co is essentially the culmination of all of that work and formalizing it and taking it to the next step um and i think i kind of launched the two roughly around the same time and i want to come back in in more detail to the campaign mm-hmm. um but could you tell us a bit about what your background was prior to that and your your entry into journalism and so forth um so starting at the very beginning i pretty much knew i wanted to be a journalist when i was at university okay um i found myself accidentally involved with the student paper um, accidentally how huh? well so i saw a piece in one of the student papers at, so i was at university at durham and there was a piece in one of the student papers about a fellow student in my year who had um allegedly according to the paper um tried to kill himself and the reporting was absolutely horrendous they pulled pictures from his facebook and um the way it was written was just i didn't realize it until i researched it but completely countered to all of the guidelines all of the reporting guidelines on how you should cover a suicide or a attempted suicide and i ended up writing an opinion piece in 
one of the other student newspapers saying just uh, what a travesty the state of student journalism is in if these are the kinds of stories that are running in student papers and um, the response to that piece was really really great um, the student involved actually wrote to me and said well thanked me basically for drawing attention to the issue um, and I ended up then uh, working on the student papers and really really enjoying it and sort of deciding okay I want to be a journalist now um, but when I graduated in 2009 it was right in the middle of the recession so I took I decided to take any job that I could which was predominantly writing but I wasn't fussed about what that actually meant and whether that was for a newspaper or a magazine I just took any job that I could find and it ended up being an editorial assistant on an alumni magazine okay. um so technically no 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 for Imperial College okay so technically a marketing job, but it was actually a really great experience because I got to write features, I got to edit them. Also, it was a magazine, the operation was me and my boss. So I got to see the whole process of what involves putting together a magazine. Um, and it was actually a really, really great experience. And around about, and at, this, at the same time though, I was freelancing freelancing I wasn't getting paid um for a number of different places literally freelancing <laughs> exactly um for a number of different places uh mainly music blogs but then at some point I started writing for the Guardian they had a careers blog and I started writing about what it's like to be a graduate in the recession um from a careers perspective and then at some point I decided to go and do my master's in America. It was prompted by the fact that the alumni department I was working for was going through a restructure and my job was at risk of redundancy. Looking back on my whole career now, I realize redundancy kind of <laughs> has made <laughs> um, a, is a recurring theme. But anyway, um, I actually didn't lose my job in that round of redundancies, but it did give me a kick up the ass to think, what am I doing working in an alumni department? No shade to the alumni department, but it just wasn't what I wanted to be doing. I wanted to be a quote-unquote real journalist. Was there like key metric how much money was donated? Uh, I think so, yeah. 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 Um, but that was on the uh, fundraisers. So I'm sure the okay. fundraisers had to... I'm sure but they it had wasn't targets. like each issue was like, they got 17,000 oh, pounds. No, 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 no. Try harder, guys. No, no, no. So the... Um, magazine was very much seen as a core offering to the alumnus to the sort of alumni members or alumni population um we didn't have to worry about whether or not it actually generated income um it generated donations um it was just kind of seen as our outward facing piece of literature okay. basically so I wasn't actually on the, I wasn't actually asking anyone for money myself, although it did actually look like quite a fun job. But anyway, um, so I decided to go and do my master's in America because I'd never done a year abroad. I hadn't done a year out as a gap year. Um, Columbia obviously has a really great reputation for its journalism program. And so I went out there. Um, Were you able to get financial support to go there? No. So it's a very expensive course and it's something that I wouldn't advise anyone do if it's going to put you in debt because 
I don't think the industry right now is in a position where you would ever recover that money over the course of your career. Um, so, so yeah, I went out to Columbia. Um, well, I went out to New York to Columbia University and then um, did a year after that at the Tau Center for Digital Journalism, researching the future of journalism and the impact digital and the internet has on journalism which was really really fascinating and what was the your experience at columbia and i went there as well a, a bit earlier we were talking off air about that how did you find that experience of both journalism school and american journalism school i absolutely loved my year at columbia um i ended up going back to america later on so i i was there did my did the year at the journalism school and then I did the fellowship and I came back to London and then I went back to America to work out there and the year that I was a student at Columbia was one of the greatest years of my whole life I would say I found that um going to a city like New York as a journalism student student is you just see a side of New York that you would never get to see just in any other capacity I had really fantastic professors and really, really learnt so much that I definitely still use today in my career. All that being said, I am fully aware that I also paid for a Rolodex of contacts. And I do I do feel that those sorts of courses, it, they can encourage more of the elitism that we already see in the media. And I'm very, very aware of that. I'm aware that I am part of that problem. Um, that being said, at that time, there were no trainee schemes available because there was being so many cuts into newsrooms that all of the trainee schemes had, had been frozen. And I was caught in, like all of my co- cohort from that year, caught in this catch-22 of of the very few jobs that were available, you were somehow expected to have all of this experience, but there were no mechanisms to train you because those schemes were closed. And I got all of that training that I needed at Columbia. I mean, the thing I found about Columbia, um, I always had a fantastic time there. What I found somewhere slightly difficult, and partly it was the terms of the scholarship that I went on, but that I'd... Um, I had this amazing year and a half in America and then I had to leave. So I'd spent a year and a half building contacts and connections and I worked at the New York Times after that and I had to go. And it was as though, you know, I, I wasn't eligible for an American visa for two years and stuff like that. Um, you, were you able to negotiate that? or Because you then went back afterwards. So um, a couple of my friends were in the same position as you were and it's a really tricky one because... And I remember going through this kind of almost excruciating anxiety in my second year because I was not in that position. I was able to get a visa if I could find someone to sponsor me. Mm. And I remember going through this period of not knowing what would happen and do I want to stay? Will I be able to find someone to sponsor me? And I looked at all the different avenues. And what I concluded is because it's America, if you have the money you can find a way to make it work apart from in the circumstance of the visa, the particular mm. visa that you were, you happen to be on, but for any other foreign or British student, at least who comes to America, there are ways you can make it work, but you just, it opens up a huge can of worms of, do I really want to emigrate to America? Mm. Will I, how long will I be here for? And I was in my early twenties and I just, I just remember it causing so much kind of 
internal and such an internal dilemma for me in the end because I was at Columbia on a work visa so it, because at Columbia my second year was was my employer okay um actually no I was on the they give you an extent they give you that basic OPT right? yeah mm. yeah which optional practical training listeners <laughs> it is actually a fantastic I don't know if it still exists it's basically a green card for a year so what it what it means is that you you have an opportunity to work legally if you studied in the US for the same period you've worked for I think I didn't have it I had something different which is kind of equivalent but a bit so you are it's it, it's it was valid for a year I don't know if it's valid for the for the ex- long as long as you've done the course for but in my case it was valid for a year because the course was a year maybe and you just have to work in the field that you studied in i mean it's very very open Mm. and you you don't have to be necessarily tied to one particular employer and some people kind of made it work as a freelancer and the smart students went and worked for companies that would then sponsor them Mm. so there were some um uh, other international students who are still in America now who went and did a internship or an entry-level job on their OPT and then that employer then sponsored them for a for a visa and they stayed on because I was working at Columbia and Columbia was my employer they don't sponsor visas at the level that I was at so they would obviously sponsor kind of the professor level mm. but there was no way to kind of for me to stay on at Columbia I was doing an internship at at courts and I remember going to my boss and basically begging for them to sponsor me for, for anything and they just said we're, we're not at that point they were an early stage startup and they said there's you know we can't do that um I looked into whether or not I could get the freelancer visa and it concluded it would be thousands of dollars and I'd already obviously spent so much money on the course that I concluded the best thing to do was just to well I felt like I had to go home basically and how was that really really tough I really yeah. didn't want to and it was um you'd been there how long two years two years but i remember i went to speak to he was actually never actually no i did audit one of his classes which basically means you you, you're allowed to go and sit in on a class but you're not technically taking the class um very american thing one of the professors that i had encountered mark hansen who teaches um maybe it's outdated to call it computational journalism but it's 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 more convoluted than data journalism mm-hmm. basically anyway i remember i remember kind of complaining well kind of going into his office and being very distressed about the fact that i had to leave and he said to me that um if that new york is one of those places that you can always come back to mm-hmm. and if it's if it's not the right time for you to be there your time will come and this is you know, there will always be an opportunity to come back. It's not this sort of, this is the only ever opportunity you have. Um, and I kind of thought, well, the how is that possibly true? Because you need a visa. That <laughs> doesn't sound true to me. But anyway, as it turns out, I ended up going back to the UK. And I did, I really, really struggled with it. Because it felt as though the decision had been made for me rather than I Yeah, I remember it. feeling like I like yeah, totally kind of uprooted and that I'd had this I'd worked in the New York Times I'd written front pages for them and things and then I went to Turkey on this like internship which I'd won from a overseas press cover war but it's kind of disorganized and, and everything and my girlfriend was in New York and all of that and it just felt like yeah really like kind of start year zero you know starting again yeah. and it is a shock because 
you asked earlier and never actually answered this but american journalism is very different to british journalism if um in many ways to start with how our newspapers are quite polarized politically they don't have that in their papers they have that on their tv channels so Mm. their papers are a bit more kind of straight down the line um there's a much there's a much richer culture of long-form writing of investigative work um it's just much American journalists don't hate themselves they don't well. hate themselves no I mean some of the more literary ones do the ones who kind of um the sort of upper upper west side um uh, writers do but um there's just it's more of a profession than a trade mm. or at least that's its roots I think and coming back I just felt quite disappointed at that partic- I think I think it's changed a lot but at that particular time, there was such an entrepreneurial spirit in New York around the digital opportunities and all of these new digital publications that were springing up and they were all based in New York. And when I came out to London, it just felt like a desert and it, you know, that wasn't happening. I think that's changed now. In fact, I know that's changed now. Um, but anyway, as it happened, so I ended up going and working at The Guardian I'd done a really short contract there just before I went out to New York and I pretty much called my old boss and asked if there was any work going. Um, came in as a temp, more or less, did some shift work. That led to a job. And At which bit of the Guardian? So it's, it was technically in what is now called Guardian Labs, which is actually their part of their commercial division. But... It's. I was working on the editorial side of the content that was funded by an external source. So that's their, it's basically their sponsored content, but they have the, they have journalists writing and covering and sort of editing and commissioning all of the, um, the actual pieces. I don't know how it works now. This was sort of in the earlier days of branded content. Um, so I'm not sure what their arrangement is now, um, but what I was pretty much covering then was um, education stuff, and um, I'd also done some um, uh, local, po- like some senior level local politics kind of stuff as well, um, and I. At that point, The Guardian then started expanding into America and I got the opportunity to take a job in the US office, in the New York Did you kind of hustle for that or did it just... I'm not sure, actually. I think it was a... I was highly encouraged to apply for this job um, that came up because it was sort of within the broader... within our broader department... So it wasn't on a complete, it wasn't in a complete, even though obviously it was in America, it wasn't in a completely separate part of the Guardian. It was yeah. just in, a international, in the international office. So I think it was a case of I was highly, in, I was encouraged to apply for it. Um, and I got it. So I still had to go through this kind of internal application process and I got it and I moved back to New York and that was their sustainable business section, which again, a large chunk of it was funded through external sponsorship but the way the those desks work is pretty much the same as how all of the other desks work you know that is the editors are 
um, setting the editorial agenda and commissioning from writers or writing pieces themselves. It's just that the funding for those projects is coming from a company rather than from advertising revenue or the payment of the Did you feel that there was any that had an impact on the kind of lines that were being taken and things were being written or things mm, that were not being written? No, not at all. No. Um, it's But those pieces, the thing is, all of those projects... It's like Guardian Cities and stuff like yeah, that. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So it's Guardian Cities. Um, the development stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's all of that. That all falls under. Although, uh, well, um, it just gets, this gets into really into the weeds of it. There's, there's Guardian Labs that do some of these projects and then there's the Guardian Foundation, which does other projects. So I think Cit- Guardian Cities is a foundation project. And I think the difference is that it's supposed to be fully philanthropic, whereas the lab stuff is still a commercial and project i don't i'm not i'm not fully sure and i don't this has probably changed now because this is this is years ago um but the way those projects are set up is that you would never end up covering something that would be on the main news desk anyway it's those guardian type sections that are the hard news so it's stuff so it's sustainable business um global development things like that was there any kind of caste system between people working on those desks and people on the sort of main desks did people want to get a hundred percent we i really felt like i was a second rate journalist or you know it there was def i don't know whether it was a feeling um, and um, a lot of my colleagues also in the kind of of, of um, at my peer level felt the same um, to the extent of whether or not we were actually being kind of considered that way from the main newsroom or whether this was more of our own projection I don't mm. know that being said again this may have changed because this was so many years ago we were not part of the NUJ chapel which sends quite a clear message that you're not a quote-unquote real journalist um and was that barrier permeable could you move from that silo into the main newsroom it was really really hard but i have seen increasingly my former colleagues who stayed a lot of them are now on the main news team or in, in the sort of main editorial unit i that also is partly to do with the fact that that um all of that content that was being made by guardian Labs seems to have been has been shrinking more and more okay. anyway and i think that, you know there were some really talented people who have just been absorbed into the and deployed elsewhere in the organization was it good to be back in new york yes it was great it was really really great it was very different being there working and getting to even though it was the guardian it was still obviously an american company and it was a culture shock again to ha- to be working with americans um, who have a very very different working style to Brits and could you give some examples um there are a lot more I mean it's it's very cliche but it is true they are a lot more direct um they're a lot more comfortable talking about money be that their salaries or be that um a commercial project or whatever it might be or how much rent they pay which actually to be honest is actually really helpful when you're an expat mm. and you're in in a new city and you don't know what how much rent you should be paying um they are i think i would say the work-life balance in new york is a lot worse than it is here there's a lot of facetime so just being present in the office and being there really early and staying there really late mm. 
there wasn't much of a culture around Friday afternoon drinks and there definitely wasn't a culture of finishing work at five o'clock and on a Friday and going to the pub. Um, but I th- like to think that I try to take some of the best, there are, you know, some of the, there are a lot of advantages to working in that more direct, no bullshit kind mm. of way. And yeah, I agree with that. Um, so I've definitely tried to sort of integrate that into my working style that I've brought back home. Um, and you then moved to Vice? Yeah, so the... then I moved to Vice. I was So I was at The Guardian for about a year and a half or two years. And then I moved to Vice to be the news editor on Thump, which is a now, their now defunct electronic music vertical. Okay. So actually just... So kind of like broadly or... Things exactly, like that, right? yeah. And at that time, Vice had sort of sectioned off all of their different key interest areas into their own sort of little... Um, they're not stand, necessarily standalone websites because they obviously do all fall under the Vice umbrella, but it was thump.vice.com, noisy.vice.com, mm. et cetera, et cetera. Um, just before you arrived, I just saw a news article about how noisy is going to be reintegrated into vice.com and i think vice are now doing a u-turn on that and they're bringing everything back into under one central umbrella um but at the time that's how things were laid out and i was the news editor so i had news writers who were writing daily news stories i was writing longer features and doing um investigations and it I guess that was the first time I started to feel like a real journalist. Why? Because I was no, I was understood to be part of the core editorial team, and that's. I mean, I definitely always felt like a. I knew I was a journalist when I worked at the Guardian, but I did internalize a lot of this kind of culture sort of system. Yeah, exactly. Um, the second rate member of staff problem that I had at the Guardian um and uh yeah and so I was at Vice in New York and then I um was actually supposed to be transferred to Berlin to move into a writing role and I came back to London for a bit for the summer to kind of sort some things out at home before moving over to Germany And that is when Vice announced that they were shutting down Thump and some other of their verticals. I think it was Vice Sports. What year was it? 2017. So this was during the pivot to video moment. Mm -hmm. That moment. Yes. That infamous moment, which has now turned out to have been the reasoning behind putting all of that money into video has actually now been proven to have been based on false data as well. And the idea was what? That? No one reads anything anymore, but everyone watches the video. Yeah, and yeah. had something to do with people wanting to watch video on Facebook. Yeah. Um, uh, and this was happening across the board. It wasn't just Vice. It was also Mike.com and Vox and BuzzFeed, I think, had a few redundancies during that time as well. Um, so I uh, went into work on a Friday. I got a call from Vice HQ in New York and was told, don't come back on Monday. Um And by this point, I had already been thinking about going freelance because I had really wanted to only to be a reporter and a writer. And up up until that point in my career, I had been editing. So I'd 
been an assistant editor at The Guardian. I'd been a news editor at Vice. And I really wanted just to be writing. Even though I was writing as well alongside all of the jobs I held, it was never the main point of my job. And I really had to push for me to get an opportunity to write. Uh, And I kind of thought, well, the worst has happened now. So How did it feel when that call came? It was quite... So I thought I was just being fired, that it was just me, because they don't, I guess it's to do with, you know, the HR and legal language they have to use. I wasn't actually told that Thump was being shut down. Um, There was all sorts of complicated jargon being used. I was quite confused as to what was happening. I thought it was just me, Mm. because they won't tell you, well, who else has this been affected? Who else has been affected by this? And because I was out by myself in the London office, even though there were two members of staff in the London, on the London team, one had just so happened to coincidentally have um, handed in his resignation a couple of weeks beforehand. So he was moving on anyway. Um, And... um, so, and the majority of my colleagues were all back in, so the rest of my colleagues were all back in New York and I had no idea what was happening. Um, and so, yeah, I thought I was being fired. And then I went set, set back at my desk and I read on Variety, um, the kind of like, uh, it's like an entertainment site, basically. I read on Variety that actually uh, Vice had um, made a cut to 2% of its global headcount. So I thought, oh, okay, I'm being made redundant. I'm not actually being fired. Um, I mean, it, I think whatever you call it, it's part of a journalistic career, right? Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it. but but how did you find the movement into the freelancing space? Quite easy, actually. Yeah, I started. So this happened on a Friday, and I was sat at my desk on the Monday, and I was saying, going around saying, "I'm a freelancer. I'm I'm not unemployed. I'm self-employed." Um, and you decided that was the avenue you wanted to take yes um and i don't really know if i i kept telling myself oh i'll see what happens and let's see how this goes i can always get a job if i have to Mm. but at the in my heart of hearts it was uh no i really really want to make this work i i kind of looking back on it now i realized that i was really being fueled by every time i'd been turned down for an internal job as a writer or that lost opportunity that I've been or supposed to be going on to this new new role as a writer for Vice that never came um all of that I realized I had internalized and started to doubt my own abilities as a journalist and my own abilities as a writer and actually trying to make it work as a freelancer for me has been so much about proving people wrong um so I think that's really what's been driving me and do you think that's healthy um, I think that now I recognize that I think I'm no I think that's I think I'm not doing that anymore mm-hmm. um maybe you haven't recognized it as, exactly as you've, you've kind of addressed it right? yeah I think it it on the one hand it can just be ambition really mm. that's just ambition on the other hand I do think it's important to be achieving things for their intrinsic value rather than trying to prove someone else kind of constantly contramundum exactly um i i'm increasingly i know it's very trendy to have a nemesis but i'm increasingly thinking that i enjoyed your nemesis email yeah exactly well and in that i pretty much say that i don't really have them anymore and um i don't really i'm not really thinking about what other people are doing i mean i i think there's there's i think it's a huge part of of writing but also working freelance is like 
I think there's two forms of envy, right? There's like productive envy, which is, you know, so-and-so has done a good piece of work and I'd like to emulate that. And then there's destructive envy, which is like, so-and-so has done a good piece of work, I'd like them to die. And <laughs> exactly. That's, you know, but you do have a choice between those. But I think in terms of like, what were the egregious things you were encountering then that, that stirred your, your campaigning muscles? It was, it really comes down to the pay issue for me because... Can you just, for maybe people who are listening who don't know how it works or yeah. doesn't work, can you just like lay out sure. so you know, the you, situation? So you'll pitch a piece. Let's, yeah, let's say you'll pitch a piece to a, a newspaper or a magazine and you'll agree the terms of that pitch. You'll say, yes, we like the idea. We want 800 words by, you know, in two weeks time. And the fee is however much the fee is. And in the UK, there'll usually be no contract. Involved. Yeah, there's usually no contract, or sometimes there's a writer's agreement, but actually if you read it, a lot of it is to do with the copyright, who owns the copyright, mm. they do. Um, some of them do say, actually, you know, here are our payment terms, and, you know, we'll only pay after publication and all this kind of stuff. But usually there isn't a contract. And then you'll hand in the piece, and you'll get the edits, and you'll go back and forth, and this process can take weeks, or it can take months, depending on the nature of the story, how long mm. it is, etc., etc. Whether it's pegged to anything. Or yeah, exactly. Things. The worst is when you do an evergreen piece that has no news peg, because it just keeps falling through the cracks, and mm. falling, sliding further and further down the priority list. And then Until your editor is fired, or the publication closes, <laughs> in the sort of extreme example. It ha- exactly, I mean, it does happen. Um, and then you will invoice for a piece, but typically... Post-publication. You will have to do it post-publication. So already you're looking, you can be looking at quite a lengthy gap between that initial commission and the publication date, especially if you're writing for a magazine. Um, Although some magazines are quite happy to to accept the invoice um, a bit sooner. But plenty of them will only accept the invoice after the publication, after publication. Anyway, and then... But that can also be the beginning of another battle, right? Once what? the invoice has been submitted. Exactly. Once the invoice has been submitted, then you start wait. Then you wait for the money to appear. Well, first of all, you may have to battle with um, all of this nonsense paperwork. So you need to fill out this vendor form or you have to use this payment system w8 ben and all that exactly if you're working for an american publication you have to fill out a form that says you don't pay tax in america and all of this kind of stuff and um sign this piece of paper and sign your rights away and, and all of this anyway and then and then you wait for the money to appear in your bank account and then it doesn't um and then you start chasing and you don't hear anything back. And then the fundamental issue is also the power dynamic here, right? That yeah. you're, you know, you're outside, you want more work and all that yeah. sort of thing. And it's very tricky because you're typically talking about money and doing the chasing with the person who is commissioning you and also editing your work. Mm. So it's not like, say, um, if you're writing a book and you have an agent who can be the buffer between you and the publisher. Mm-hmm. You're doing this direct to, or if you're negotiating for a salary for a new job, you should be negotiating through HR rather than your hiring manager. Um, but as a freelance journalist, you're talking about money typically with your editor, the person who's actually working on your work with you. And there's also the issue of expenses reimbursement as well, right? Which means that you can, under some circumstances, be asked to front a lot of money yep. yourself. Yep. Yeah. Um, so yeah, if you if you go abroad on assignment, or even if you just you know take a train somewhere in the UK, which is pretty much the same cost as going taking an inter- international flight, 
uh, you will have to pay for that and you probably won't see your expenses until you just fo- until you file your invoice. Um, so yeah, then you kind of sit out and you wait for you to, to be paid and then inevitably you don't get paid and then you start chasing and then and then tip it, then often eventually you'll be directed to a faceless accounts payable at publication.com email address and you'll start emailing the accounts department and they'll say oh actually this this number is missing um off your invoice or something is wrong or whatever the case might be and why do you think it is so bad i think it's many reasons i think that for editors who've never freelanced they don't know what it's like Mm. they don't realize that this thing that's happening with one payment is happening across all of the other publications that you're working for one journalist put it really really well to me recently she said that she's making more money now as a freelancer than she did in her staff job but feels poorer because the money is just not coming in Mm -hmm. and she's owed so much cash flow exactly it's a cash flow problem so so there's that that you're you you know you don't have the sympathies of of the of the editors who also them you know as an as a former editor myself i know that you're overworked and you're you're there's too many demands on your job it shouldn't really be the editor who's dealing with the freelancer payments there should be a dedicated person on each desk that's handling uh, and what about the actual sums being paid as well I mean, they vary wildly. So that's the other thing is that in the grand scheme of things, probably an editor's kind of looking at your £300 fee for a thousand word article and kind of thinking, well, pff, what's that in the grand scheme of things? But I think it, might, it might be worth just for, for this is like kind of, lay, and we can do this jointly, but like laying out what gets paid for what. I mean, so like British newspapers generally pay 50 pence a word. Yeah, like they, some of them do. I mean, so the Guardian's starting, I mean, obviously you can negotiate everything up, but the Guardian's work per word rate is 31p for print. Um, and, um, uh, Which is not very much. No, maybe. it's not. Um, as it happens, the tabloids tend to pay more the broadsheets and the americans pay more than everyone yes yes so the americans you're looking at a dollar to two dollars a word or more at the top ends of the yeah magazine exactly but those are few and far between and they're not i i find through doing all my work with fj and co my newsletter they're not super accessible to people who are just starting out or no. who don't have those kinds of networks or who haven't written for an American market. Um, or who don't have quite a lot of reporting experience as well. Yeah, I think in that exactly. Yeah. yeah, they're not they're not viable entry level. Yeah, but um, a typical online piece, you're looking at 200, 300 pounds for, mm. for like a sort of a flat fee for a feature that can be anything between 800 to um you know a thousand two hundred words why do you think these rates are so low i mean is it simply a supply demand thing that lots of people want to write stuff no i think i think it's a problem with the publications just not having big enough budgets because their advertising budgets have been swallowed up by facebook and google although i don't have sympathy for these media publications because this problem could be seen a long way off and rather than try to correct course, they embraced Facebook by hiring massive audience growth teams that tried to beat the algorithm and encouraged Facebook sharing and encouraged Facebook as a way to bring traffic to their websites. Um, this seemed, for some reason, this was completely divorced from 
the problem that Facebook was affecting the advertising model and different revenue streams weren't being explored and sort of solving this problem wasn't wasn't addressed until it's kind of too late. I mean, I, d I don't think media is going to disappear, but it's a real problem that the budgets are, are small because they're not, the media companies aren't bringing in enough money through advertising. But there's still money. You know, if you look at, say, what a, you know, a newspaper like Telegraph and that, they would pay their columnists compared to the... But those know. rates will... What will happen with those columnists is not that that job will continue. Those people with those columns, once they stop writing them, be it because they move on or be it because they die in post, that money will not then be redistributed to another columnist. It will, that budget will disappear. Um, there are people who are, you know, there are, there are plenty of columnists who are kind of grandfathered in and um, it's, I don't think it's a case that, I think aspiring to have a very high paying column is um, as a career ambition. It's archaic. It's archaic, and it is that. It's not. Happen. I think that's not the point. I think yeah. the point I I raised was like, you know, I, I obviously the budgets have been stretched and so forth. But my view is that like, you know, publications could, uh, you know, could skimp on paying writers in a way they couldn't skimp on paying their accountants or skimp on paying, you know, the people who print the thing or delivery or stuff like that, right? Because because people want to write stuff. I don't know because to a large extent so many editors complain about the quality of writing so I don't th I don't actually buy this argument that it's a supply and demand problem because I don't think that it's a case that oh well if you don't write it someone else will undercut you um, but I suppose it's also I think what why what you're doing is so commendable is that there's an absence of collective bargaining, right? Yes. That this is, these are, the, the freelancers, these are extremely unequal power relationships. Yeah. And so what I'd be, and you know, there there are precedents for, for unionizing, really, if you look at, you know, the writer's strike in America, the thing, things like that. But, you know, when, when you put this, this set of, is demands the right word together? Asks, I would say, but... <laughs> Ma manifesto. <laughs> I'm very, um, I've been very careful about the words I've used, but sure. <laughs> uh, what is it? Um, I've red said, red lines. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, what was the response? Um, so it's had a thousand signatures from both staffers and I mean it's obviously predominantly freelancers, but um, some staffers and and sort of individual editors have signed have signed it. Um, I have had um, I have had media bodies, so not media publications, but media bodies um, get in touch to offer support and to sort of ask about how we could maybe how we can take this to the next step which is to actually try and have these asks answered in some way has anyone like sent your horse's head or no. menaced you in a no no okay no i mean at the same time has anyone actually offered to pay money up front there have been a few small publications who have said by the way we already do this but these... i'm not sure had you had you said on air what your asks what? No, I don't think I have. Could you tell, so, tell yeah. the listeners what the asks are? Yeah, so they it's an end to payment on publication. And we'll put this in the show notes. So it's, Great. So. Um, so yeah, so the first one is an end to payment on publication. So some kind of mechanism whereby at least half of the fee is paid on submission or upfront, which is something very typical in other self-employed industries. If you Slash all other Yeah, exactly. If you hire a builder, you pay half of the fee before the house is finished. Mm. Um and then it's... And actually, if you write a book, 
as well you know exactly yeah 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 it's, it's an it's an advance on payment it's an, it's already something that happens in the publishing world um and then it's respect of late payment fees so there is actually a statutory right for self-employed workers to enforce a late payment fee if their invoice is overdue and the um those payment terms are actually 30 days so even though a publication might say oh my payment term the, their payment terms are 45 60 days 90 days the law actually says that you should be paid within 30 days and if not you have a right to a late payment fee which is um there's a flat rate of 40 pounds for payments under a thousand pounds and then 70 pounds for invoices over a thousand pounds plus in the uk in the uk this is only in the uk plus interest which is um set at the bank of bank of england's interest rate and a little bit more i think um, i mean the interest actually the interest bit is pretty small i mm. mean it's for each day that the payment is late um the interest is quite small I but i'll take one of your children yeah exactly um one finger and, <laughs> um but as I like to emphasize, this is not a fee that I have made up. This is the law. Yeah. Um, and it's just ignored routinely by publishers. Anyway, and then the third ask is um, updating unfit for purpose payment system so as i alluded to before there is so much red tape and um complications with the actual payment systems yeah, themselves yeah. because they're just not set up um either to, to pay people yeah they're just not exactly they're just not set up to pay people so these also and it's not i often think as well like you know it's not a financial transaction of inordinate complexity we're not asking for like a credit future swap you exactly. know it's just a payment and there are now so many fintech companies and new methods of payment that actually there is there is another kind of um i read this somewhere that there is another school of thought which is payment terms shouldn't be 30 days anymore because 30 day payment terms were for when you are literally cutting a check and putting it in the post in this modern world where you can pay people instantly and bank transfers no longer take three to five days they are instant um payment terms shouldn't even be 30 days but that is a that's a future mountain to climb. Do you think um, publications kind of deliberately pay people late to improve their cash flow position? I'm trying really hard not to slip into a jaded school of thought that says yes. Hmm. Um, I wouldn't be surprised. I I like. I perhaps naively think it's because they don't realize the scale of the problem and yeah. the problem is actually cut up into lots of different parts that happen in lots of different departments that are siloed and aren't talking to and each other. And as you say, like editors are thinly spread yeah. and they have other responsibilities. Yeah. And stuff exactly. Like well. I mean, to correct this problem would require a managing editor, heads of editorial and finance teams to come together and fix this. So I think that that's also, going back to one of your earlier questions, like that is also one of the reasons that there, this problem exists. That being said, I wouldn't be surprised if actually, yes, some smaller publications or some publications that are really, really struggling with their own cash flow are maybe doing, this is an active strategy on their part. In terms of you know next steps, I mean, it, it's interesting. I, my understanding is that at one stage, the New York Times was sued by mm. their freelancers in a class action suit. And they're not very good. Like they have a system that functions and mm. it's, it's quick and things like that. Do you, is your hope that the asks will produce answers or you know, is it time for direct action? Um, I think direct action is not 
out of the question but i think it would be you need a greater escalation <laughs> exactly um i think uh there are quite a few steps be- before something like that would need to happen again because i think these asks are really really not even that monumental it would be a real shame if they require direct action to be met hmm. um so um i'm in i'm talking to a a number of different organizations to figure out how to take this campaign to the next level and to start having the conversations with the decision makers at at media companies and at publications are there's not a whole lot more i can say about it at this point but i'm hoping that something will come of this um and i have a number of different ideas that i'm playing around with before we get to the hostage taking (laughs) exactly and what about the the kind of other part, you know, the events you've been organising, yeah. the panels? Could you tell us a bit about that? So um, under my FJ and Co... Which stands for... It stands for Freelance Journalist and Company, but it's... Uh, I never use its full name. Okay. Um, it seemed like a good name to like use at the HSBC. time. HSBC. Yeah, exactly. Rarely abbreviated to exactly. Hong Kong, Shanghai, Bank and Corporation. Exactly. Um, I so I think actually I think I need to kind of go back to the beginning which is the week I got made redundant I started writing a newsletter as a way to anchor my week and make sure that I had some somewhere and a place to write because at that point I didn't know what was going to happen if I was going to get commissions Um, and so I started writing a newsletter and it took a while to it took a while for me to find my feet with it but eventually i started actually just chronicling my journey as a freelancer and who were you sending it to so my initial list was pretty much just went through my inbox and you know added all of my friends and people that i sort of knew in a professional capacity and i said i'm starting this newsletter i'm not just going to add your name to this email list um if you are interested sign up here here's the link um if not you know have a nice day Mm. and then i sort of tweeted it out um initially the readership was tiny and it was really 90 percent friends and family you know with kind of my parents replying to every email and that kind of thing when did the graphics stop um pretty early on actually and who does that so a friend of mine back in new york called leo hamlin okay she is a journalist filmmaker and illustrator she's kind of moving into this graphics journalism space that's just really cool yeah so she did this really great piece of buzzfeed last year where she went down to the texas mexico border and did this sort of series of postcards from the border where she interviewed um um, she interviewed mexican immigrants who were being detained i think at the border um and um she told their story through these illustrated postcards so uh anyway so she writes so she does my graphics for me she does my she does a little cartoon for each issue um for each newsletter and yeah that started pretty early on um i don't pay her yet but there are plans to pay her um because at the moment i um at the moment the newsletter isn't making a direct income so i do get um quite a few commissions off the back of the newsletter and i would say that in the grand scheme of things it's sort of good for my brand um because some of these newsletters are now subscript by subscription right yes so i have actually moved on to a new platform called substack which is a platform for paid newsletters Mm. and i will be introducing a paid um version of the newsletter very very soon um i was actually supposed to be launching it today but i couldn't 
for technical reasons. So it'll probably be, and the announcement will probably be going out next week. Um, but I will be launching a paid version of it, which in part is so that I can pay Leo. <laughs> um, and also so that I can do more content and provide more resources for freelancers. Um, because actually the newsletter is now pretty much the favorite, my favorite part of what I do. What's it's, your audience? Um, how, how big is it? Yeah. Uh, 2,500 okay. um, subscribers. So it's a pretty decent amount. Um, basically, I got to the point where I reached the limit on MailChimp and then they started charging me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it kind of felt ridiculous that I was paying to write a newsletter that I don't get paid for. Yeah. So I had to rethink about it. Um, but anyway as the newsletter grew and I started kind of growing this community around me of fellow freelancers, I was just being asked for kind of more information and sort of more resources and more help. And I realized that actually there's a really vibrant and active community out there. And contrary to popular belief, freelancers actually are not trying to kind of keep their work hidden from each other. They actually really want to collaborate and meet each other and share ideas. Yeah, it's not zero sum. Exactly, it's collegiate. Um, so I decided to kind of, the next step was, um, essentially sort of doing, well, so the newsletter is a very one way thing. I send it out and I might get, I get, I do get quite a lot of messages back, but there's no interaction between the people who read the newsletter. So the events are pretty much a way to meet people in real life, but also to talk about very, very practical elements of freelancing. So I think you came to my um, finance finance panel. Yeah. Yeah. So my aim with all of the events is that the audience should leave having learned something that will make their freelancing life easier or um, help them make more money or whatever it might be. It's supposed to be very, very practical and it's supposed to have Is it specifically aimed at women? It's not. I Because I I did have a look (laughs) and I could find you've had one male speaker as far as I could find who was an accountant and... That is an active decision on my part to have um, male accountants. Um, Very well. No, no, no. To have um, where possible to have only female lineups or at least majority female lineups. So I call I, I unofficially describe FJ and Co as a female first community. So um, my priority is to make women feel comfortable coming to my events and to um, bring issues that are relevant to them. Um, I'm not excluding men, but they Anna's are, making some pretty emphatic hand gestures while yeah, she's doing this. I'm talking with my hands. I'm not excluding men, of course. That being said, I do also run um, meetups that are exclusively for female freelance journalists. Um, those are just networking events. But that's because there are there are issues that affect that are unique uh, in how they affect female freelancers. So I think, as you saw from the finance panel, how women negotiate is very different to how men negotiate. Um, and sort of being able to feel that you're comfortable talking about that is something that's really important. Um, also and the attendance was mostly female as well. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. also, I think that's also probably, I guess that's just a, also a byproduct of the fact that I'm a woman myself and that I'm attracting a female audience. It's not something that I... Oh, yeah, it's it's not... It's because you're creating a hostile environment. <laughs> I know, yeah, apparently. It's not... Um, yes, it's not just for women, but it is something that I'm conscious of and um, that I'm conscious to make women feel comfortable in that space. Um, what, what are the specific challenges you think women experience? So there's the big one is the, um, the childcare and the maternity 
leave as a freelancer because sure. you don't have that um and um you know how do you balance if you want to be a freelancer and you want to have kids how you know how does that work i have a lot of women write to me and say that you know they can't attend my events because they have childcare issues in the evening and it's really difficult for them and being a free but balancing freelancing and being a working mom is really really tricky um as i said there's the negotiating your salary um and um I think also this is not necessarily so much about freelancers, but definitely something I felt. And what I love about freelancing is that as a woman in the workplace, I didn't realize this until I went freelancing. I just grew so tired of just the struggle of being a woman in the workplace and dealing with um, gender pay gaps in your salaries and um feeling like you are being mansplained to and all of this kind of stuff and actually can feel very empowering being a freelancer as a woman because you then just work for yourself and you don't have to deal with all of that nonsense anymore well anna thank you very much for being uh, such a strident uh, and excellent guest and wishing you all the very best with the excellent projects going forward thank you very much so ellie thoughts on the anna cadrea rado episode well, I know you're trying to embarrass me because, you know, I haven't listened to it yet because I've been very busy. Uh, interviewing rappers? <laughs> <laughs> well, not even interviewing them, just going to their, I went to Skepta's listening party yesterday. Tell us about that. I felt incredibly um, uncool, actually. Everyone was much younger than me. And, you know, I have a you do have You do have deep age-related anxiety. Yeah. 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 So, uh, no, it was, it was fun, but it does mean... How I much older are you this week than from the last episode? Um, Two weeks. Two weeks, yeah, you can tell it. You're drying up. With my smile line, yeah. Um, Yes, so that's why I haven't listened to your episode, but I'm sure it was very good. Potentially award-winning is how I would describe it. Potentially. Um, Not without me, though, on air. No, no, this is true. Um, Yeah, I think think, uh, I'll do a solo post-mortem of Anna. Um, I think the work she's doing is really impressive and really important um, and be interesting to see whether the industry kind of sits up and sits up and takes notice of it. Um, and as a freelancer, you have a vested interest. I mean, I'm massively partial, <laughs> usually, <laughs> usually biased. Um, yeah, but good, good to have her on the show. Um, we can also give some hints as to who's coming up on the show in recent weeks. Um, we're going to have uh, James Graham, the playwright. Okay. Very exciting. Uh, also, John Lee Anderson from Who the New Yorker. Who we just spoke to this morning. In a weird like podcast meta thing, we're now recording yes. the extra for Anna having just recorded John. He was fascinating. He spoke all about... Yeah, it's a really good episode. Anyway. Um, yeah, very fascinating. Uh, anyway, how's our banter? Slowly improving? I think or just we must ban that word now. We've used it too much. Okay. And, um, yeah, ban. Alright, we're going to end this now. This has been... Uh, and that's the uh, Frontline Club generator in the background. Yeah, us. featured heavily in the next episode. Yeah, yeah. This has been Always Take Notes, presented by myself, Simon Aikum. And me, Elena Hall. Our producer is Nicola Keane. Our social media is by Zara Hankir. Our score is by Jess Danheiser. And our graphic design is by James Edgar. You can find us on Twitter at Take Notes Always. On Instagram, always take notes. Please do rate, subscribe, review on iTunes if you enjoyed. And think about giving us lots of money on Patreon, where we are at Always Take Notes. Many thanks. Bye. Bye.